I want to say as well, I couldn't think of a better Sunday for us to be focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of all the investments that you've made, expertise in worship, signage, people, Pastor Scott and his family who have served faithfully over the last number of months, all the investments everywhere around leveraged to help us grow, the thing that I'm most grateful for, the most intentional fruit-bearing investment that you made as a church into a different part of Tallahassee is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The DNA of a church that for 25 years has clung to this one message that God has given us. You determined to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and that is what we've endeavored to give to Midtown Tallahassee. I'm so grateful for that investment. I'm happy to dive into this series. We've called it Truth Matters because we are walking through the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. We've come through five articles. This is article number six. I think it's okay for me to say that of all the six, this is my favorite so far. I know that when you're talking about the truth of God, it sounds a bit like naming your favorite child. I would, I would caution against that sort of thing. I'm not Paul Tripp. Take that as you, want, as, you, as you may. But this particular article is of first importance. It's primary. Of all the revelation of God in Scripture and in all creation, he has been whispering and hinting and revealing one summit after another. And so finally, Scripture tells us that in the face and person of Jesus Christ, that he has unveiled fully to us in power. And that more than that, his love has been extended to us in such a profound, a deep way. So loved the world that the work of Jesus Christ is in many ways a pinnacle. This is primary. I don't want you to just take my word for it. In a second, we're going to read through the actual statement in the article, and we're going to pour over it and say, how does this articulate what we believe? But I want to start with Scripture. I think as best I can, this comes from, I could say that this comes as a summary from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. This is how the Apostle Paul begins to bring this letter to a church of dysfunction to a close. You know, sometimes in the midst of suffering and trial and widespread sin and heresy, God unleashes some of the most clear articulations of faith. It's how we've learned the Trinity. It's how we've come to grips with who Jesus is. And that happens here for us in chapter 15 as well. This is what he writes. Now, I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let me take a moment and pray. Would love if you would turn your hearts, your affection, your desire, your longing toward God with me. Let's ask that He makes these words fresh and new to us. Let's pray. Father, you're good. You have a message of hope, of light, of love for those who are far off and those who are near. You have spoken clearly in the person of your Son. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this message that is delivered by Paul, your chosen instrument of grace. We thank you that in the midst of all that you have revealed, every glorious thing, that this matter, your own Son and His work, is of first importance. God, I ask that over the next few moments that you would help us to settle deep down in our souls, to anchor our lives, our church, our ministry, the message of this place, that it would be anchored directly on the person of Jesus Christ. God, help us to not proclaim the gospel, but live as though it were secondary. You have given us this word of power for a dying world. We want to be creative. We want to be winsome. We want to be careful to plead with lost people to be reconciled to God. I pray, God, you give us eyes, give us ears, soften our hearts, I confess to you my inadequacy. I pray that as we study and learn together that you would do what only you can do. Make the gospel new in our souls. Holy Spirit, come. Give us a spirit of truth. Enlighten us in the knowledge of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you keep something central? How do you keep it primary? Paul just said to us that this message, what he delivered to them, was of first importance. And I don't know about you, but I am not very good oftentimes at keeping the things that I know to be true, that I want to be central. I'm not very good at keeping those things central. I can be scatterbrained, I can be insensitive, I can be thoughtless, I can go in a million different directions despite the fact that I know what I want my life to look like. I know what I see as truth, and yet I can vary from these things that are vital and precious. And this is not a new thing, I don't think, with me, and it's certainly not a new thing with God's people. Unless we think that just because we have gospel-centered as a tagline, we outline it in our membership class, just because it would be in a statement of faith articulated here, we cannot have the kind of arrogance that would lead us to think, oh, not us. We would never forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never. And yet, the history of God's people shows that sometimes the law of God, His Word, the life that He gave to His people can be so discarded and left to the side that there were times in Israel's history they did not even know where the Word of God was. And the only, the only hope against that sort of distraction and that sort of neglect is for us to be extremely clear 
and creative and intentional, ask God's help for us to keep the gospel primary. I'm trying to say today, basically, in more or less words, that, the pri- that there is a primacy of the gospel, that a certain truth should be primary in everything that we declare. So the first thing we want to do is we want to articulate it. What is the Bible trying to say? I'm going to read this article in just a moment. It's called The Gospel. And I confess to you right up front that all of the Bible in some measure is the gospel. You know, this, this book is one story about how God redeems for himself a people from beginning to end. And so in some measure, when I say to you, like, if I say to you, I'm going to show you the one place in the Bible where the gospel is, that's like saying to you, I'm going to show you the one place there's an explosion in a Michael Bay movie, right? That just doesn't, some of you, no? So there's, he makes movies, that things explode, that's the point. God write, writes a Bible, he wrote a book, and it's gospel all over. That's the point. In some measure, I could say to you, show me in the Bible where the gospel is. Well, do you have time for Genesis to Revelation? But most clearly, it seems like, articulated from 1 Corinthians 15, the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith has settled in on this wording to help us keep the gospel primary. So let's read it through together. I think it'll be on the screen up behind me. This is Article 6. We believe that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, God's very wisdom, utter folly to the world, even though it is the power of God to those who are being saved. This good news is Christological, centering on the cross and the resurrection. The gospel is not proclaimed if Christ is not proclaimed, and the authentic Christ has not been proclaimed if his death and resurrection are not central. The message is, Christ died for our sins and was raised. This good news is biblical. His death and resurrection are according to the scriptures. Theological and salvific, Christ died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Historical, if the saving events did not happen, our faith is worthless. We are still in our sins, and we are to be pitied more than all others. Apostolic, the message was entrusted to and transmitted by the apostles, who were witnesses of these saving events and intensely personal, where it is received, believed, and held firmly, individual persons are saved. This is a marvelous articulation of the gospel. We need these kind of statements because gospel is such a churchy word. Is it not? Couldn't I say to you with a sort of strained look on my face, and sincerity of heart and moving hands, what we need is the gospel. And you know what people have been trained to do? They nod and say, oh, yes, mm-hmm, mm, like warm chicken soup for a sick person. Yes, right? Do we know what it means? That's the point. We cannot go on with mere religious-sounding jargon. That does not save Jesus Christ, his person and his work, saves. And so we want to press down as deeply as we can the message of the gospel by knowing what it means. What I'm going to propose over the next few minutes is a start for us to say, how can we keep the gospel primary? How do we creatively guard it? Imagine you were given the Declaration of Independence or something. There's no treasure map in the back, but you're given this Declaration of Independence, right? And you need to put it on display. You want all the world to be able to come and see it, while at the same time, not breaking it, not changing it, not altering it in any way. 
Well, what did we do in America? We create this whole building for it, an elaborate glass system. People have put thought and effort. I guarantee we have paid engineers. We have paid engineers to figure out all of the nerdy ways to protect and keep precious a document like that. They probably have those lasers that you can't see unless you're James Bond with like baby powder. You know what I mean? No? That is what we do with something precious and primary. And what I would say to you is we need a plan more than, I don't know, I guess if we just keep getting together and sing some songs, someone will guard the gospel. Someone will be reminded of what it is. These are three things that I think could help. They're from 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what we need more than ever. We need to be able to clearly articulate the gospel. So by that, if articulate is is going to be hard to remember, we need to speak it in actual words, the content of the gospel. That's one of the ways that we protect it. It's one of the ways that we pass it on, both in our own souls and to others, we articulate it. Second, we need to proclaim it. We need to joyfully proclaim it. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then we're going to see that the last way that we cherish the gospel and we show it to the world is we receive it again and again and again. Mercies that are new every single morning. That is how we're going to create a wonderful little, by God's grace, a wonderful little place to put the gospel primary in our life. I just gave you an articulation of the gospel from the Gospel Coalition. There's words in here. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to those who are being saved. Christ died for our sins and was raised to reconcile us to God. And if it is received, personally received and believed, people are saved. These are the words of our faith, and we need them. Have you ever studied for a test and had the horrifying experience of sitting down to put pen on paper and realizing that what you thought you knew, you only sort of vaguely knew? In other words, you knew it in the sense that you knew how to read the words and it looked like English to you, that much you could recall. But that doesn't do much good when someone says to you, no, I want you to put down what is it that you're clinging to. What do you know about osmosis and cell division? What do you know about financial markets and mortgage-backed securities? Or whatever it is, right? What do you know? It's not enough to get into the economics exam and just say generally, there's some guys with money. Uh, They want some more of it. So... Then when people need a place to live, I think they give them some money. Yeah, something like that. That does not work. And what I would want to say to you is we need to reject as much as we possibly can the temptation in our soul to be vaguely religious. This is the way that D.A. Carson put it. I love it for its simplicity. He basically says this, the gospel is not bland theism. You know what I mean by that? Bland, in other words, the most generic kind you can get. I'm talking the worst kind of great value Pop-Tarts. They have no flavor in them. They're the kind you don't go cheap on this thing. It cannot be the bland just any sort will do. And it's not just general, God exists and I acknowledge him. I heard a great story from a friend yesterday hanging out the fourth. He was talking about his family and it was a little bit of a strict upbringing and they were careful. They didn't want him to listen to music that would corrupt him or anything like that. But as an enterprising and brilliant young man, he came up with a system to get around this. He would go to the front of his cassette tapes. Remember those? You remember that? 
You used to be able to cassette. You could, you know, back then they used to be like, it's going to kill music. You can record the radio now. No one will buy music, right? So that thing's been going on for a long time, Taylor. So there, right? <laughs> so there's these cassette tapes, right? Cassette tapes. And what he would do is he would go to his parents and he would find a cassette that he wanted to listen to. And so long as in the introductory notes, it said something about, I thank God for the ability to make music. Then he would go and show his parents, and this was, okay, now this one is okay. So he was just out hooping to voice to men, right, or whatever he was, whatever he needed. This is some sort of bland, just latent theism. This is not the gospel. It will not do. What people need is not an acknowledgement that there is a man upstairs somewhere who is more powerful than them. They need to know that God exists in a triune relationship from all eternity past, that he is personal and intimate, that he is holy beyond belief, and that one day because of our sin that we will stand before God and need nothing more than to be clothed in righteousness that we simply do not have in and of ourselves. And that in response to this problem, because the relationship was completely severed, that God moved and gave himself in the person of his son, so that Jesus could come and redeem for himself a people. He lived a perfect life every moment in righteousness, tempted yet without sin. That he died a death that every single one of us should have died and deserve. And more than that, that in that death it pleased God, it pleased him to deal with our sin, to absorb in Jesus every single bit of holy wrath that is due sin. It goes on. More than that, death could not defeat him. He overcame the grave. This is the specific nature of the gospel. This is why Paul says to them, I want to remind you, and he goes on to describe what the gospel is. Bland theism will not do. It is so tempting in your own life even to get to the place where you say to yourself, I generally kind of know the basics. I know God is, and I was kind of a bad person, and then something with the cross. One of the ways that I believe that we mature in the faith, one of the things that I would do with middle school students or my children or high schoolers or college or beyond, is I say to them, as often as I can, articulate the gospel. Speak it to your own soul. Write it in words on paper. Say it to your neighbors and your friends. Here's some of the things that will come out if we are getting to the gospel, not just vague God's up there somewhere. One, it's, this is the point that's made in the article's statement of faith. It's Christological. Now, that is a nerdy word if there is one, right? Christological. Anybody use that yesterday? Probably not. Christological basically just means this. Let me say, I'll just boil it down as I possibly can. Until you get to Jesus, all you've had is a nice little chat. That's what it means. It means there ought to be an expectation on a church from preaching and from your own soul in reference to your sins that until you get to the point where Jesus locks in in first place and at the central gaze of your soul, you are playing with religion. You're just sort of, you're just sort of in the area, but you're not quite there. Our gospel must be decidedly and definitively about Jesus Christ. That's where Paul begins. This is what I delivered to you, he says, as of first importance, what I received, that 
Christ. The gospel must be about Jesus Christ. It is irrevocable. I couldn't say that word. I'm going to get there. It can't be about nothing but Jesus. (laughs) I can say that easily. It cannot include vague generalities. It must be about Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we know about the gospel. It's about not only who he is, but what he's done. Let me go a step further. It must be historical. That's what the statement of faith says. It must be historical. In other words, Jesus actually physically lived in time and place. This is massive. We cannot lose the historical, physical nature of Jesus Christ. There's a famous exchange between a religious leader and a reporter. It was an apologetics kind of conversation, and it was put to this religious leader. Supposing we found a tomb one day. It's an archaeological dig. We find out this is the tomb of none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And it turns out that the stone is not rolled away. In fact, it's intact. We find the burial clothes, and there are the bones of Jesus Christ. We can DNA test them, and they're there. What does that do for your faith? And ashamedly, this religious leader said, you know, not very much at all, because Jesus was risen in my heart. No. Super no. Never. Uh-uh. Wah. Bad. Paul writes all of 1 Corinthians 15 to say, if Jesus is still in the tomb, if the bones are there, we should be pitied above all people. Jesus really lived. He really died. And in the flesh, in history, he came back to life. This must be maintained and cherished by us as a church. Not only is the gospel Christological, but it's a historical Christ. I love Paul's emphasis as well in 1 Corinthians 15 on Scripture. This message is biblical. In other words, there is not a disconnect between the God of the Bible and the way that he showed up in Jesus Christ. All of Scripture is breathed out so that we could see and cherish Jesus. There is no disconnect. He says that these things happened according to the Scriptures. God was not one person in the Old Testament. He got a new PR firm hired Fiore Communications and said like, hey, we need a new image. Let's send Jesus. No, from before the foundation of the world, God working, God the Father loving, electing, redeeming, Jesus obeying, submitting, saying, I will come and redeem. I will give my life as a ransom. The Holy Spirit of God moving and working to bring about redemption. That this plan was set in motion far before this period of time. It's according to the Scriptures. So it's Christological, it's historical, it's biblical. And then finally, I would just say this, it's theological. That's mentioned in the article of Statement of Faith. There's a few that we're not going to quite get to, but I wanted to mention this. And it's basically this fact. Jesus could have been born by the Virgin Mary come to earth, lived a perfect life, been crucified on the cross. He could have even been raised from the dead, and all of it could have been God just showing off. Right? It could have just been him showing off. 
It could have no connection to your sins. It couldn't matter to you one bit. It could be the same way that we see an amazing lightning storm or a hurricane or any other manner of amazing miracles that God can do. He would just show off. Look at me. I can become flesh. Look at me. I can live perfectly. Look at me. I can overcome death. It could have been God showing off. Sort of like, you remember Jesus after he resurrects, he like goes through the wall when he's with his disciples? Admit it. If you could do that, you would do it all the time. You would have spent like the next three weeks just showing off. Like, boo, <laughs> see ya. Right? That's what you would have been doing. Jesus, as Christological as it is, focused on him, as historical as it is as a person, as biblical, according, all the events could have taken place, but there's this one amazing, glorious fact that turns it from merely historical and merely miraculous to theologically significant, and that is this, that in Jesus Christ, God was forgiving our sins. The way we relate to God as Father, as Holy fundamentally changed in Jesus. That is a part of the message. The gospel is undeniably theological. We must say, what does this mean to me and my relationship to God? And until you have described and mentioned the fact that sin is first and foremost an offense against God, and that in Jesus dying and overcoming death that sin was done away with, then you have not brought the fullness of what this is telling us. So articulate the gospel. That's the point. Now, I could go on and on and on and on. Some people have said that the gospel itself is like a, there's one end of a pool where even the, the smallest of little tots can just wade around in it. And it's so deep that the deepest of divers could go. That one guy who made a submarine and went to the bottom of a thing. Remember the Titanic guy? Doesn't matter. The point is, I know that we could talk about this forever. But what I want to invite you to and call you to, you know one of the ways that this church is going to guard the primacy of the gospel? It's for you to continually press further into your understanding of the nature of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Don't let someone else say it for you. Don't get stuck saying to yourself, you know, I've been a Christian for 20-some years, but I don't really know how to put it into words. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be speech-worthy. But this is the delight of our souls. What God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you ought to be able to speak it, get better at it, more fluent. Another way that we're going to be able to guard and keep primary the gospel, I said is to joyfully proclaim it. Now, I'm going to say this in a way that's maybe a little bit more memorable, hopefully. Here's what we need to do with it. We need to gospel the gospel. That's what we need to do. It's interesting, the way that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So we read the word preached. The interesting thing is, is that the word there is actually just another form of the word good news. He basically says, I good newsed the good news to you. I euangelion, that's the noun for good news. And then he euangelionized the, good, the euangelion. That's what he did. You pay attention to that, it's, clo- it's very sophisticated grammar. He euangelionized the euangelion. That's what he did. I know it's hard g- Greek words, but it basically just means this. He treated good news like it was good news. When was the last time something moved you so directly and so inescapably that you gospeled it to someone? 
It doesn't have to be anything intense. You just got on your phone, called up your girl. Yo, this mascara, it's on point, right? You just gospeled it. You just moved this. I cannot believe it. It's not flaky. It goes on. I don't know if that's the way it works, but it's perfect. You could be watching NBA free agency. You wouldn't believe who the Lakers got. JK, right? Or whatever it is. You could gospel something to someone because inherently what you are designed to do is when you encounter good news, you treat it like good news. You will herald it out to people. There is someone right now in this world with their spouse designing, how are we going to tell people we're pregnant? What do you think we should do? I saw this one on Facebook where they were like reading what to do when you're expecting, you know, or something like that maybe. Or, and then there's other people after they find out the good news who host whole parties with cupcakes and colors inside. Why? Why? They act like it's good news because it is good news. That is what Paul is doing. He says, brothers, when I was around you, I acted like the gospel was good news because it is. I preached it. I heralded it. I screamed it from the rooftops. One of the reasons that we meet every single week is to rehearse and to gospel to one another, to good news eyes, to one another, to remind ourselves of what an amazing bit of news this is. Your sins can be forgiven. More than that, your sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ if you would just have him. And you know how good that is? That news is so good that Bill Gaither can just write songs all day long about it. We systematize a celebration every single week about this good news. Let me tell you a danger in this. There's a potential that because you're accustomed to coming into this place and having amazingly gifted worship leaders like Josh lead you in celebrating, because there are professionals who herald the gospel, there's a temptation for us to professionalize this task. That can never happen. The moment that the church loses the impetus to herald the good news, and it's turned over to a professional workforce, then we have lost it as a church. Completely lost it. Fire me before you lose the ability to exalt in the gospel personally, privately with your friends. There's a temptation to professionalize it. So we articulate the gospel. We gospel the gospel. And I know I said that's a code word. You might not know what it is, so hopefully you know by now. Here's another thing that we can do. Here's another thing we can do, and I think that God can do this afresh for us. We can receive it. We can receive it again and again to come with fresh need, a desire for mercy again and again and again, and you can receive this gospel anew. The amazing thing is that how you appropriate it, how you appropriate forgiveness, how you get to take on the benefits of what Jesus accomplished is a part of the good news itself. Because I could have said to you a gospel of something very different. It could sound something like this. You know God hates sin. You know he hates that. Stop it. Until you stop it, don't you come back here. Or more than that, I could say, you know, it's amazing. No one could live a perfect life before 
And no one had ever died as a sacrifice in such a humble way, and no one had overcome death. But Jesus came to show us that it can be done. Can you believe that? He showed us the roadmap. Okay, now get out there. Get out there and do it. Don't you say, Jesus showed you how to do it. Just live a perfect life. Absorb the wrath of God. And then get out of that grave. That's not good news. Don't you feel that in your soul? That's icky news. That's horrible news. That's just more of the same, more of the inept life that we've lived before. And so part of the good news, part and parcel to it, is that all that Jesus is and all that he's done, you know what he says to you and I? He says, here, I give this to you. Would you just stop? Would you just take a sigh of relief? Would you open your eyes and just look and rest on me? Oh, this good news just keeps getting better and better and better. It is finished, he said, and he meant it. And so every single time we take on ourselves the burden and the yoke of our own righteousness, the idea that somehow God loves us less or loves us more depending on our actions, we rob some of the goodness of this good news. The way that you can cherish and keep primary the gospel is to receive it again brand new today. To receive it and to stand there, Paul says. To hold on tightly. The way that you receive it is to merely believe. Something this valuable, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, freedom from death and destruction and wrath, it could be worth any price. It's priceless. And yet what God says to you is, would you just believe? For someone to come through suffering or pain, fighting sin, and for you to look around at the world and to say to them, despite everything that's happening, despite all of my inadequacies and my brokenness and my sin, you know what I'm doing? I'm standing here on Jesus Christ. I'm believing on Him. There's nothing more powerful to a watching world than that. More than a beautifully done sermon, more than a song that soars into heaven, you, personally, looking at friends and family and neighbors to your own soul, saying, I believe, and Jesus is enough. That can do wonders for keeping the gospel primary in our lives. I want to commit to you a few things. I think it's fair for me to say this. As a church, corporately, the way we apply this is that we will, as best as we possibly can, always be a gospel-centered church for a lot of different reasons. One, it's the only thing that works. There is no hope for this world apart from preaching Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit making people alive. It's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works. Let me tell you another reason. Because when we try anything else, it always, always fails. The church should just honestly not be very good at anything else. You want to be entertained? You can find it somewhere better. Have you seen Cirque du Soleil? Right? Lecture time with the man in a sport coat is not entertainment. You can get something better somewhere else. Why do we be gospel-centered? You can get better sleep at home. 
not here. Some of you have tested that theory this morning. You know it. Can I get, a te- can I get an amen, right? You could get better business connect- connections elsewhere. There's a chamber of commerce for that. We have one thing to offer to the world. One thing. The message of Jesus Christ and salvation in Him alone Nothing else works. Nothing else changes. Nothing else forgives sin. Nothing else builds the church like the gospel. The moment we do not keep it centered in who we are, we should close the door, turn this place back into Piggly Wiggly or whatever it was before. It's all we have. It's all we have. Jesus Christ, Him crucified. So as a leadership... We've determined to know nothing but Him and Him crucified. It's a corporate understanding, as best we possibly can. And I want to remind you there's an individual application of this as well. You might ask yourself, you're here and you're hearing these words, and honestly, the Bible itself is not ashamed to say that in some way this is a message of foolishness. So you might ask yourself, how is it that I would hear and believe? How is it that I could receive this? How is this even possible? Well, let me tell you, I want to remind you the most basic definition of the gospel is what? You know it. It's good news. And when is something good news? Only when it is. And not a moment sooner. If you were here today and Jesus is just a kind of side add-on and you've never felt the depth of your guilt before God and you've never had a desire to love Him more than yourself, if you've never heard what Jesus has done for you and had a strange affection stirring in your soul, if you've never said, I I love him because he first loved me, then you will never receive the gospel in the way that you should. Use an illustration. Give you this idea of what it means to actually hear good news. It's about dancing. I hope that's okay. I have dance parties with my kids at home. We had one just the other day. It's fun. Some of you are more manly than that. You're saying, I'll dance one time with my daughter at her wedding. Butterfly kisses or whatever it is. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to listen. Because it's potential, especially in a church like this, because I use churchy words like gospel all the time. But this could be where you're at. I want you to imagine a house. It's filled with people. Some of these people can hear and some of them are deaf. You have no idea which is which. You have no idea which is which. One day you see a man come into a room and it's silent. And you see a light bulb go off in his head. He walks over to a stereo and he turns it on. Beautiful music begins to play. And without fail, because this man is hearing the music, he sits down and after a little while his foot starts to go, right? Some of you know what that's like foot starts to move. You just cannot help but dance. You're being moved by the music because you hear it. And after a while, he's just in a full-blown choreographed dance. Another person walks into the room. This person is deaf. They look at this guy for a while and they say, well, he seems like he's having fun. I guess I, I could try that too. Tries the steps, right, or whatever, whatever dance it is. He starts to follow in the steps of the guy who's in the dance. A second deaf person comes in a little bit later, and after a while, they're, they're dancing, and they look at each other, and they have this kind of look in their eye like, you know, this guy seems to really be enjoying this, and I guess it's okay. I mean, I learned the steps, but 
not really doing it for me. I don't know, it's kind of tiring. The difference, of course, is that one person receives the music. They dance because they've heard the music. The best way for us to keep the gospel primary in our lives is to beg the Spirit of God to let us hear the music loud and clear. The moment we begin to say, no, here's what you need to do. Dance when I tell you to dance. That's how we keep the gospel in the center. It's not the way God's designed us. You, I pray, when you hear that Jesus Christ died for your sins, I pray that something erupts inside of you. And in the same way that you stomp your foot and move your arms and dance around a room because the music moves you, I pray, I pray that the message of Jesus Christ does that in your soul. It's only good news if it is. There are some of you that maybe just grew up and you know the dance. You like to be with everybody else and it's kind of cool to be around, but you know, it just doesn't, it's not really just the same. I want to pray for you. I want to beg you to listen again. Ask God. Say, God, I I desperately want ears to hear the gospel as good news. And I know for a fact, because I feel it in my own soul, that for many of us, you can think back to a time when you heard it loud and clear. And now it just sounds a little fuzzy. It's like turn on the radio dial and you're getting some other station in. And I believe the sincerity of heart that here today you desire to hear it afresh. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. When we preach it, God moves and sends his spirit and makes Jesus brand new to us again and again and again and again. We as a church want to speak Jesus We want to preach because when we preach, God will move and people will believe. That's our message. That's our story. We're sticking to it. Let's pray.